God, we are so thankful for uh, the privilege of gathering as a church family to hear from you, from your word, to sing praises to your name. Lord, thank you for, uh, for this opportunity that we can come and gather and just, and just rest in you. Lord, I pray for uh, other churches in uh, the Fishers community that are also gathering at this moment. God, we think of our brothers and sisters at Grace and Northview and Heartland and, and other churches, God, many other churches that are preaching uh, your gospel message. Lord, we just lift them up to you and pray uh, for the blessing of your word. God, that your word would just go forth in power today in those congregations. Lord, that the name of Jesus would be exalted and that you would bless them today. And so, Lord, as we uh, turn to your word now as a congregation, Lord, we pray that you would confront us, pray that you would encourage us. God, we pray that Jesus would be exalted. We pray this in his name. Amen. Well, as we uh, continue on in our sermon series on 1 Peter, uh, we're going verse by verse uh, through this very important letter. I just want to take a couple minutes and just remind us of who Peter's writing to and the circumstances that they were going through. Peter is writing to a group of believers who had become spiritual exiles, that these Christians are living in a culture that was against Christianity, and they were experiencing some type of hostility because of that. And so Peter is writing to them to help them navigate a complicated and potentially hostile world. Now, just to remind you, the, the heart behind this series on 1 Peter, the reason why we're spending time in this important book, is to get our heads and our hearts around this issue, is how do we, as a church, live in our present culture that's becoming increasingly hostile to Christianity? What should our church look like? What, what kind of people should we be as we live in a culture in which there continues to be the uncoupling of Christianity at its core. I want to recommend a book to you by Russell Moore called Onward, in which he attacks this very issue uh, as it relates to the church's role in, uh, in the culture. And just to warn you, this book, Russell Moore actually views the uncoupling of Christianity from the core of our culture as a potential positive. And the reason why he does that is because of the opportunity it presents for the church to be the church kind of forces the Christians who are, who are hiding, who are just culturally Christians and yet not authentically saved. And so he writes this in his book. He says, We the church will be speaking not primarily to baptize pagans on someone's church roll, but to those who are hearing something new, maybe for the first time. We will hardly be normal, but we should have never tried to be. And he says this, he says, the best witness the church can offer to post-Christian America is to be the church as fiercely and creatively a minority as we can manage. Now, that statement there, kind of his conclusion of our role as a church is to be the church, even as we become more of a minority in this culture, is the very same issue that Peter addresses throughout the, the letter of First Peter. In fact, our passage is going to highlight some of the tension that you feel when you're living as a Christian in a, in a culture where you're becoming the minority, and yet you're also being mistreated. And so the Christians that Peter was writing to were wrestling with this question, how do we influence those that are mistreating us? 
How do we impact those that, that are persecuting us? We want them to be saved, but, but how does that exactly work? Well, Peter wants us to know what it means to be an effective Christian in a hostile world. That Peter, one thing that we're going to see even in our passage, is he wants us to know that, that our influence towards those outside the church will only go as far as how healthy we are on the inside of the church. And so as we move through our passage today, I have three uh, main points. The first one uh, from verse 8, we're talking about godly living inside the church. In other words, what's, what's the flavor of our church supposed to be like? What, what should our church feel like and be like as we live out, uh, as we live as the people of God? And then number two, we'll look at verse 9, and we'll look at godly living towards those outside the church. How do we interact with the world, specifically as they mistreat us because we're followers of Jesus? And then verses 10 through 12, we'll look at the motivation that Peter provides for us in the form of a promise or a blessing. Verses 10 uh, through 12. Okay, so let's dive in. First section here, verse 8, godly living inside the church. Let's read it together here. He says, finally, all of you have unity of mind, sympathy, brotherly love, a tender heart, and a humble mind. Now, Peter obviously highlights these five traits that the people of God should be uh, living out. But before we get to those, I want to point out those first four words in our verse. He says, finally, all of you. Now, that word finally, what Peter's doing with that word is he's trying to pull us in because what he's doing is he's actually summarizing all that he has said up until chapter 2, verse 11. If you remember chapter 2, verse 11, it's kind of a turning point in the letter where Peter starts to unpack practically what it means to be a sojourner and an exile in the midst of a hostile world. This is an important word that kind of pulls us back in uh, to his summary statement. And then he says, all of you. Now, the all of you is referring to believers here. Uh, this verse, verse 8, applies to just how Christians are to live with other Christians inside the church. Uh, verse 8 is not about how we are to live with the un an unbelieving government official. This is not about how we are to live with, with an unbelieving boss or coworker or an unbelieving spouse. But verse 8 is about how Christians are to live with other Christians. Now, out of all of the hundreds of things that Peter could have said, about how Christians are supposed to treat one another, what does Peter say here? Well, Peter does not provide a list, for, a, a list of things for us to do. He doesn't say, hey, make sure that you pick up the trash, make sure that you arrive to church on time, make sure that you wear collared shirts. He doesn't give us a list of things to do, but Peter actually describes a kind of people that we are to be. He describes how the gospel not only saves us, but the gospel actually has the power to shape the people of God. The gospel actually provides a certain kind of flavor for the church as we live out these traits as the people of God. And so let's move through each of these five traits together. Here's the first one. Peter says to have unity of mind. Unity of mind. Now, this means to be like-minded. This also implies uh, kind of the willingness to conform one's expectations, preferences, goals, and needs to the purposes of the larger community. Other translations have this to 
live in harmony with one another. Now, we all know that that unity in the church is a very important aspect for for any type of healthy church. And yet, what what Peter is not saying here is is to have uniformity. He's not saying that everybody needs to look exactly the same way and to think exactly the same way. And I think that's also important. In fact, that's one of our core values here at College Park Church is biblical unity in diversity. That Peter is actually describing a group of believers who are on the same page, who have a common mindset, who are unified, but they don't look exactly the same way. In fact, they don't even agree on every little thing. Unity is so very important, so important that Jesus prayed for it and the early church displayed it. If you look at John chapter 17, Jesus' great high priestly prayer to God, he says, I do not ask for these only, but also for those who will believe in me through their word, that they may all be one. Now, how unified? How, how much should we be one? Jesus says, just as you, Father, are in me, and I in you, that they may also be in us, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. See, Jesus is getting at something that, that I think Peter would also agree with, that based on how unified the people of God are inside the church, it has the potential to impact those outside the church. Jesus says that he wants us to be one so that the world may believe that God sent Jesus into the world to save them. And that's exactly why I think that Peter starts with verse 8 before he talks about verse 9. As he's trying to address the question, how can the people of God impact the world even, even being mistreated, He starts with be unified, be the church, be a church that's loving, tenderhearted, and he goes through this list because that impacts our evangelistic purposes with those outside the church. Now, Jesus prayed it, and now the early church displayed it in Acts 4.32. He says, now the full number of those who believed were of one heart and soul. No one said that any of the things that belonged to him was his own, but they had everything in common. I don't know about you, but if Jesus prayed for this and the early church displayed it, then this is really, really important for College Park Fishers. This whole idea of of being unified, having biblical unity, and yet starting with what it means to have biblical, biblical unity is not just understanding a group of people of what they're against, It's not just having a group of people being on the same page of what they're for, but I think having biblical unity starts with the people of God understanding who they are together as the church. I think that's where we need to start when we think about biblical unity, that College Park Fishers is not just made up of hundreds of different Christians who kind of live however they want to live outside the church. But College Park Fishers, we are a church family. We are unified under the headship of Jesus. And so because that is true, each of us must take on a posture of grace, a posture of humility, a posture of understanding towards those who we might disagree with on minor issues. So I think we need to start with understanding who we are together, not just agreeing what we're against and not just agreeing with what we're for, but who we are as a church family. See, what unifies us 
is that our identity is in Christ, that Jesus holds the banner over our church, not a particular political party, not a sports team, not a particular life stage, but what we have in common is that we have been redeemed by the blood of Jesus and we have been adopted into the same family. And so because that is true, that means we need to live out that reality as brothers and sisters by showing grace, humility, and understanding, even if we disagree on minor issues within the church. Now, not only that does Peter highlight having unity of mind, but he also talks about uh, sympathy, being sympathetic toward one another. Now, these next three that that Peter supplies are very, very similar. They're slightly different uh, as it relates to just emotions. But what Peter means by sympathy here is having an understanding or seeing things from another's point of view, not just your own. That you're not just concerned about your own agenda, your own needs, but you're concerned about others. This means that when one suffers, we all suffer. When one rejoices, we, we all rejoice. That there's, there's a concern for other people that's deeper than just the concern for things on the surface. Now, we've all come across people who, who are sympathetic, right? Like, I don't know if you've noticed this. People who, who are really strong with sympathy know that when they're talking to somebody, there are really two conversations going on. That on the surface, there's one conversation where they're talking about maybe politics or sports or, or the weather, but someone who is sympathetic understands that there's a second conversation going on, and that conversation is taking place between my heart and the person that I'm talking to's heart. And someone who's sympathetic wants that person to know that I'm concerned about you, I value you, I'm interested in what you are saying, and what you are saying has meaning to me. And someone who is sympathetic is not just concerned with that conversation that's going on on the surface, but is also concerned about making sure that they're connecting with that other person's hearts. They want both conversations to be taking place with intentionality to make sure that they know that you value them and that you are for them. I think that's what Peter is getting at with this word of being sympathetic. And not only that, But number three is brotherly love. The third trait that he describes is for a godly people to interact with other Christians is to make sure that there's brotherly love. Now, this is all over the New Testament. Like even even Paul in Romans 12, 9 and 10 says, Let love be genuine. Abhor what is evil. Hold fast to what is good. Love one another with brotherly affection. Outdo one another in showing honor. I don't know about you, but like I hear so much about love one another. This is kind of our banner as the people of God that this is so easy to become a cliche. Like this is so easy for, yeah, we need to love one another that it kind of loses its, its meaning. Like what does it actually mean for your love to be genuine, for you to love the people of God? Well, a couple of questions for you to consider that what it means to, to have your love be genuine is have you noticed if Does your love have restrictions on it? Does your love kind of have a a cap to it? That you'll love the people of God up until this point, and then, man, when it gets past that point, I'm going to start to back away because it's too much. Or does your love, uh, when you love other people, is it genuine in the sense of, are you loving other people even when they don't look exactly like you? 
Are you loving people that, that think differently within the body, that look differently than you, that, that, that they're part of a different life stage? Are you loving other people even when it's inconvenient to love them? Or even when it, when it costs you something? See, I think Peter is, is trying to drive home this point that the church should feel less like going to Lowe's and more like a family gathering. That when you have brotherly love, when this is a, a core characteristic of the church, it should feel less like going to Lowe's and more like a family gathering where you're having Taco Tuesdays at your house with family and friends. And do you know what I mean by going to Lowe's? Like you walk into Lowe's and, and it's so kind of cold and, and individualistic and you barely talk to anybody, you grab what you need and you're out of there. Like that, that should not describe what the church is like. That should not describe the, the flavor of College Park Fishers, but it should be more like Taco Tuesdays at your house where everybody is welcome. There's always a seat at the table for people where you're loving people, you're being known, and you're, and you're knowing other people. I think that's what it means to have brotherly love being a core a trait for College Park Fishers. And notice, like, even Jesus, Jesus says in John 13, 35, it says, by this the world will know that you are my disciples. By what? By loving one another. Again, another trait that seems insider-focused, that seems inwardly obsessed, and yet it has an evangelistic aim. See, Peter's listing all of these traits. He wants us to be healthy on the inside of the church because he's answering this question, how can you interact and influence those outside the church who are mistreating you? And he says, hey, make sure that you love one another. That's number three. Number four, having a tender heart. Now, this is very similar to being sympathetic, even being loving. But the tender heart, this phrase in the Greek, I thought this was kind of funny. It could actually be translated as to feel generous in your belly. And in Peter's day, that the belly was kind of like the center of a person, uh, kind of different than the heart, but it kind of it impacts people's generosity and what comes out of a person. So Peter's aim here is to be the type of person that's gentle, that's full of grace, that's not harsh, not abrasive, that, that's actually approachable and warm and tender, not always forcing your agenda. And then number five, humble mind. Have a humble mind. Now, I think Tim Keller has written some of the best work on humility out there. And one thing that I love about Tim Keller, he talks about how there's nothing more relaxing than humility. You think about that for a moment. Like, that's so true. Like, both for the person that's humble, like when you're truly a humble person, you're, you're not trying to find your worth and your identity, and what other people think of you. But I think that's also true, that when you're around humble people, it also relaxes you. It, it causes, you, causes you to feel at home and, and, to, and to be at ease. I think that's so true. And I, I just, my hope and my prayer is that College Park Fishers would, would be that kind of church, that when new people come in, in fact, I had someone in between the services describe our church this way. He said, when I came, when I came to College Park Fishers, I just felt at home. And he was encouraging me because I was teaching on this topic. He said, I just felt at ease. I felt relaxed. I felt like I was, I was with people that, that want to know me. It's a safe place. And what that person is getting at is this aspect of humility. And so 
how do we, how do we become a humble people corporately or as, as the people of God? I think the best way to grow in humility is the art of self-forgetfulness. The art of self-forgetfulness. In Tim Keller's book, The Freedom of Self-Forgetfulness, he, he points out just a brilliant point that C.S. Lewis makes in Mere Christianity. This is towards the end of the book, but C.S. Lewis says that if you were to meet a truly humble person, you would never walk away from meeting them thinking that they were humble. They would not be always telling you how much of a nobody that they were. They wouldn't be self-degrading themselves because that's actually being self-obsessed. He says the thing that you would remember from meeting a truly humble person is how much they seem to be totally interested in you. He says that the essence of true humility is not thinking more of yourself, and it's not thinking less of myself, kind of self-degrading, but it is thinking of myself less. See, true humility is not trying to connect everything back to you. It's not trying to connect every experience back to you, every conversational topic back to you. But true humility is, is basically you, you've stopped thinking about yourself. It's the freedom of self-forgetfulness. And isn't that so true? Like, like when you're talking to somebody and, and the, the topic is, is on something that you feel like you can't quite contribute or it's an experience that you've not had, have you noticed your flesh wants to kind of hijack the conversation and, and turn it to a topic that, that you actually have something to contribute on? Like that, that's the opposite of humility. That's pride creeping in because you want to impress someone else. And yet true, true humility, you're stop, you basically have stopped thinking about yourself because you're so interested in other people. Does that describe you this morning? Like would, would your family describe you in that way? Would, would your small group describe you in that way? Or maybe when you take a stand back and you look at these five traits, maybe, maybe you're looking through these five and, and you think to yourself, man, there are one or two of these traits that I really need to work on. There are five or two that I am especially weak. And I just want to challenge you, I want to encourage you, if that's true, which, which it probably is, I just want to challenge you to tell somebody in your small group that. Tell the person that's discipling you or tell somebody in your family, hey, I'm weak here. I need prayer, all right? I need accountability, all right? I need, I need someone to kind of share, what does this look like practically more in one of these five traits? Because I don't know about you, but two things stick out to me when I look at, at this list of five things. The first one is this. This list is impossible. Like, I look at this list and I think, this is, this is so daunting, to think through that I've got I've to be unified, I've got to have, have a tender heart, I've got to be uh, humility, all of these things. I think, I can't do this. And I think that we're, we're almost forced to conclude that. That, yeah, on your own, you can't live this out. But you can only live this out through the power of the gospel. To think that the list here of these five traits, it's, force, it's forcing us to think about what it means to live out the power of the gospel in our lives. See, the gospel, it not only saves us, but the gospel empowers us. The gospel actually has the ability to shape how you live. And you might be thinking, okay, Chris, what does that mean? Like, how does the gospel empower us? Well, the gospel empowers us because only in Christianity do you have the verdict before the performance. Have you ever thought about that? Like, 
only, Christianity is the only religion where the deity or the God, whoever it is, declares the verdict over your life before you actually perform. That if you place your faith upon Jesus, not on yourself, not on your works, not on your church attendance, but you place your faith and your trust upon Jesus, God in that moment declares you justified, declares you accepted, declares you fully loved, because your faith has united you, according to Colossians 3, has united you to Jesus, so now you're hidden in Jesus. So when God looks at you, he doesn't see your sin, he doesn't see your shortcomings, but he sees the righteousness and the perfection of Jesus. And so when you put your faith upon him, you are justified in that moment. The verdict is in. You're loved. You're accepted. And the reason why that empowers us is because out of that verdict, we can now obey. Out of that reality, we can then start pursuing the, the, the five traits here. We can pursue a life of obedience because the living God through the Holy Spirit lives inside of you, helping you and empowering you to actually live a life of godliness. So look, we don't pursue these five traits to earn God's love or approval. We already have it in Christ. And so out of that reality, we can pursue these things because, look, the weight is off. The burden is off. We're not, we're not pursuing godliness to earn God's love. You already have it fully in Jesus. And so it empowers us to live out these five traits because of who we are in Jesus. But the second thing that, that sticks out to me about, about the list of these five traits is how much we need each other, is how, how interconnected we are, probably in ways that, that, that's actually hard to admit. Like you can't possibly live out these five traits as a lone ranger. You can't live out these five traits by, by just coming to church for an hour and a half a week and then going home and, and trying to live out these things. Like you can't go into your room and, and, and live out humility or live out unity. Like you need the people of God. You need the, the people that are, that are in this room right now in order to live out these five traits. And that's part of the reason why we encourage membership. We encourage small group ministry. We encourage different Bible studies is because the small group actually provides a laboratory or a playground to living these five traits out, that we actually have a safe place to, to practice our faith, to live out our, our faith in fear and trembling. So I just encourage you, if you're not in a small group, to, to check out a small group. Just no, no pressure, no commitment. Just try it out and see if a, a small group would fit for you. Or maybe you're in a small group and you're thinking to yourself, well, Chris, like, we, we don't really live out these five traits well. And I just want to encourage you, though, like, what safer environment to, to attempt to live out your relationship with the Lord? Like, you're with a group of people that are for you. They've made a commitment for your growth. And so to, to work out your faith, to, to repent of your sin in, in a safe place to actually pursue these five traits, there's no better place to be. And so we need one another in order to live these things out, in order to be a godly group of people. So Peter not only talks about godly living inside the church, but then he transitions to verse 9, and he talks about godly living towards those outside the church. Look at verse 9 with me. He says, 
do not repay evil for evil or reviling for reviling, but on the contrary, bless. For to this you were called that you may obtain a blessing. Now, a couple of reasons why I believe that Peter is transitioning and talking about how we are to live with those outside the church. First, notice this is very similar language to chapter 2, verses 21 through 23. That Peter says, for to this you have been called. Okay, same phrase in our verse 9, that we've been called to this as well. Now, what have we been called to? Well, he talks about how Christ has also suffered for you, leaving you an example so that you might follow in his steps. He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. Now, that's very similar language to verses 9 through 12 in our passage, that Jesus endured mistreatment and persecution from those outside the church. And so Peter, in verse 9 through 12, is talking about how do we respond to mistreatment inside the church? In fact, verses 10 through 12 in our passage, which I'll unpack in a moment, clearly refers to the righteous, referring to believers, enduring mistreatment from those who do evil, referring to unbelievers. Now, more importantly, though, the the main question that Peter is addressing in 1 Peter is how in the world should Christians treat those outside the church when they've been mistreated? How should we conduct ourselves? And Peter starts to zero in on that question in verse 9. Now, notice what Peter says, though, to the community of believers who are going through persecution. He does not say, go out into the world and aggravate your community. He doesn't say that. He doesn't say, go out there and and take on the same approach as they did as it relates to how you should treat uh, those outside the church. In fact, Peter doesn't even say, simply ignore them. He doesn't just say, he doesn't even just say, just pray for them. Peter doesn't say, just, just think positive thoughts about them. What Peter says in verse 9 is so outrageous, it is so countercultural, it is it's actually so frustrating what Peter says, how we are to respond to those who mistreat us. Peter doesn't just say, do not retaliate in the same way with evil for evil. What Peter says here is we are to bless those who mistreat us. He takes it a a step deeper in there and says, look, don't just not retaliate, but actually bless them. Now, why? Why would Peter say such a thing? Well, it's it's what he's going to be getting at here in chapter 3, verse 15, that this is kind of the goal. Look down there with me. He says, have no fear of them, nor be troubled, but in your hearts, Honor Christ the Lord as holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you, yet do it with gentleness and respect. See, that's, that's the goal for why we should not return evil for evil, why we should not revile in return, and why we should bless those outside the church who mistreat us because we want to get to this. We want other people to ask us, why are you so different? Why are you blessing us when we're mistreating you? What, what hope do you have? This is the goal. So Peter says, look, bless those who mistreat you. Don't just hold your tongue and hold your tongue from saying something nasty and curse them in your hearts. He says, bless them with your actions and bless them in your hearts. 
Or as one commentary put it, he says, to bless means to invoke God's favor on someone. That those who are able not simply to clench their teeth and remain silent, but to maintain an inner attitude that allows one to pray sincerely for the well-being of one's adversaries are truly a witness to the life-changing power of a new identity in Christ. Look, you're not just called to ignore people who insult you. You're not just called to pray for them or to think positive thoughts. You're called to bless them. Or as Jesus takes it a step deeper, as he always does, he says, Luke 6, verses 27 through 28, he says, But I say to you who hear, love your enemies. Do good to those who hate you. Bless those who curse you. And pray for those who abuse you. Now, you hear that. Now, how might this uh, be applied in your own life today? Maybe you're here today and, and you feel like just mistreated by coworkers or a boss because you're a follower of Jesus. Or maybe uh, people in the neighborhood or people in your family insult you or, or they, they treat you differently because you're a follower of Jesus. How might you apply this in your context? What, what would it look like for you to bless those who mistreat you. I love the, the way that Paul and Silas in Acts 16 just beautifully live out this principle. Do you remember the story in Acts 16 where, where Paul and Silas, they get thrown into prison because they were living a godly life and preaching the gospel. And so they're in prison, and instead of responding and hurling insults at them, what, what's Paul and Silas doing all night in prison? They're singing. Yeah, they're singing and they're, and they're praying and, and, and they're blessing those around them with their singing. Well, well, throughout the night, there's this earthquake that takes place, this great earthquake. And it was so great that the ground was shaking and the doors on the, on the prison cells open up. And so some of the prisoners leave and yet Paul and Silas, they remain. If you notice, they, they don't taunt, they don't insult back, they don't go and hurt the jailer. And, and yet the jailer has this sword, and he's about to, to take his own life because his, his only job was to ensure that those prisoners would stay inside. So he's about to kill himself, and yet Peter and Silas say, look, we've, we're here. We didn't leave. We're staying put. And the jailer was so overcome by that, he, Paul and Silas had an opportunity to share the gospel with them, and he receives the gospel, him and his whole household, and they get baptized. And you take that principle Peter, or sorry, Paul and Silas, they don't respond by insulting, but they respond by blessing. And one of the greatest ways that you can bless those who mistreat you is by sharing the gospel. It's the greatest way that you can love those outside the church and bless them by talking about Jesus with them. Look, I know you're not in a prison cell in in the context of, of your workplace. Look, I know you're not in a prison cell within your family, but but it may feel like it. It might feel like the way that you're being treated at work or in your family because you're a follower of Jesus, that it feels like a prison cell. Well, how might you apply this principle? Could could the Lord be allowing you to go through this season in order for you to leverage an opportunity to share the gospel with those who mistreat you? Like, don't don't turn inward of, of, woe is me, I'm being mistreated, but turn outward of the Lord might be using this unfair treatment and this persecution to bless and extend the gospel 
to those outside the world. Well, like Peter, he doesn't just slam us with commands, but he also provides the motivation. I appreciate this about Peter's writing. He's trying to inspire us to live out this high calling with the motivation in verses 10 through 12. He says this, he says, For whoever desires to love life and see good good days, let him keep his tongue from evil and his lips from speaking deceit. Let him turn away from evil and do good. Let him seek peace and pursue it, for the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous, and his ears are open to their prayer. But the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. Now this promise or this blessing that Peter highlights for us comes from his, his favorite psalm, which is Psalm, someone say it, come on, 34, thank you, good. Psalm 34. Psalm 34 is Peter's favorite psalm. All throughout this letter, I've been trying to highlight different aspects of Peter quoting that psalm and using this psalm. Well, Peter is almost directly quoting word for word Psalm 34, verses 12 through 16, as he's grounding his exhortation in our passage. Now, this is an ideal psalm for for Peter to select, to inspire Christians to live a godly life in the face of hardship. This psalm was written when David was under great pressure. And if you remember the the account in 1 Samuel 24, David had been anointed king, anointed by by, uh, the prophet Samuel to be king, and yet King Saul is persecuting him. He's mistreating him so much that David has to flee. He has to leave his homeland, and he has to live as an exile. And yet if if you read Psalm 24, David doesn't respond by by, uh, by insulting Saul. He doesn't respond by, 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 by having evil behavior against him. He actually blesses him. And in our account, in verses 10 through 12, did you notice the blessing that, that's in here? That Peter's using this blessing as motivation. He says that those that are righteous, meaning those that are living out, verse 9, and keeping their tongue from evil and their lips from speaking deceit, what will they receive? Well, Peter says that they will love life, they will see good days, and the eyes of the Lord will be upon them and his ears open to their prayer. What a beautiful promise. Like, what a beautiful blessing to inspire and to motivate us to live out verse 9. Because look, this is Peter's point here. Peter's point is that if you claim to be a follower of Jesus— You need to act like one, even in the face of persecution. That if you claim to be a follower of Jesus, even when you're being mistreated, we are called to bless in return. And when we do so, we will inherit and we will receive this beautiful promise that God will see you and that God will hear your prayers. This this is an amazing, amazing passage as we think about what it means to influence those outside the church as we think about how can we make an impact with those in, in surrounding culture, it's by first being godly on the inside, but then it's also blessing those on the outside. And as a result, this promise and this blessing is ours. And that college park, like that, that promise, like that's, that's enough motivation for us. That we want God to be watching us. We want God's ears to be open to our prayers and this, this is our calling as a church. It's to be a light in a dark 
in a hopeless world. That we want the Fishers and, and the Noblesville community to look at the Christians of College Park Fishers and say to themselves, what makes them so different? Like, why do they respond the way that they respond? Why do they live the way that they live? Like, they are so unified. They, they are so loving. They are such a humble people. What makes them so different? Like, tell me about your Jesus. Like, that, that is our goal as a church in this community, that by living godly lives, by being for one another, by blessing those who mistreat us, we might create more and more opportunities to talk about Jesus with this community. And so let's be that kind of church for the glory of God and the advancement of the gospel. Let's pray together. God, we thank you so much for the the power of your word. God, we thank you for the conviction of your word. God, this passage is, is so meaty. God, this passage is so, so hard to live out on our own strength and our own power. And so it forces us on our knees to be dependent upon you. And so, God, I pray that you would just continue to shape us as College Park Fishers to be a group of people that shines brightly in this community. God, we want people to be, to be curious about Jesus by the way that we live our lives. We, we want to live lives that make Jesus so compelling to this community. So God, would you give us the power and the strength to bless those who mistreat us for the glory and the beauty of your name. Amen.